everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have an awesome show for you this week. We might call it Ifatastic because we are going to be talking about news bits from Ifa. We've got a company that just raised a lot of money to help you in your home. And we've got, of course, smart speaker news because this is a day that ends in Y. And Kevin and I are going to talk about some, I don't know, user experience challenges we've faced in the last couple weeks that you'll probably want to stick around for. After that, we've got a message from this week's sponsor, Afero, and our guest, who is Chris Young, the CEO of Chef Steps. He's going to be talking about the Joule sous vide cooker, why it doesn't have an interface, and his strategy about whether to go it alone or license with someone else. All of this, plus a good recipe. Now, let's hear from this week's sponsor, Afero. Looking for an IoT platform? Find out why Kenmore and D-Link picked Afero. Afero customers have experienced as much as an 80% reduction in time to market, 99% fewer support calls, and a 10x higher activation rate. Plus, they can now reuse 90% of their work from one project to the next. To learn more, visit afero.io. That's afero, A-F-E-R-O, dot I-O. Okay, Kevin. I know it's Aoife, but first, actually, let's just talk about Aoife. Let's just get started. This is a giant home appliance and houseware show in Germany. And up until a few years ago, it was not even on my radar. But with the era of the connected home, smart appliances, and even things like the Amazon Echo, Aoife has become a huge trade show for us. I would have gone, but I'm actually going on vacation tomorrow, so I didn't go. <laughs> Yeah, it's I've actually followed it for a long time because it reminds me of like the international version of CES to some degree. It's held in Berlin every year. And aside from the stuff we talk about on this show, there are laptops and mobile devices and so on and so forth, things that I cover elsewhere. So there's a ton of stuff. I mean, one of these days I want to get out there. Kevin, you could have gone, but no. But no. Now, we're still going to hear, Aoife just started, so we're still going to be hearing news that we'll cover probably next week or in the newsletter. But for now... We have some smart speaker news. Harman Kardon, which is now owned by Samsung, actually announced a $600 Google Assistant speaker. It feels like a lot of money. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's you're buying this for sound quality. The Google Assistant is kind of like, well, I guess it's becoming table stakes these days for speakers in a sense. But, you know, I mean, you can get a Google Home Max for $200 less. This has 200 watt stereo speakers, can support High definition audio streaming has an LCD touch panel at the top. So this is definitely a high end device. I assume it sounds good. Haven't heard it, obviously. But it is strange to me that Harman Kardon is making a Google Assistant speaker when they are owned by Samsung. I guess they, in a good way, they're keeping that line still semi-agnostic. Yes. Although I would say this is, I'm a little concerned because remember when Sonos was talking, uh, the information actually did a story several months back about Sonos being able to do both Madam A, which is what we call the Amazon Echo Assistant to avoid setting off the assistant everywhere. So they wanted to add Madam A and the Google Assistant. And to do that, they actually had to bludgeon Google with patents. And what I'm concerned about is you might have several speakers, but you're not going to have multiple voice assistants on that one speaker, even though technically it is very doable. 
Well, it is very doable. And it becomes, I think, a political battle between the companies that provide the voice services and such. Have they said, has Sonos said that they're not doing the Google Assistant now? Because they did say by the end of the year. So I'm kind of holding out hope for it. No, no, they are. They are still doing it. But to to get the ability to make a Madam A speaker and a Google Assistant speaker, they actually asserted their patent rights over some smart speaker technology. The theory is that Google's using it in the Google Max. I don't, you know, those are deep insider negotiations. So I don't know how that exactly worked. It does make, I'm like, oh, you know, I don't want to have to pick and choose. And if I really want awesome sound, you know, that's expensive to have, you know, a Madam A version and a Google Assistant version. I don't Absolutely. Like nope, I don't either. But hey, if you want to spend even more money, you can, because did you see the Bang & Olufsen speakers with the Google Assistant built in? Yes, that was neat looking, like... All of Bang & Olufsen's stuff. Did it look like it was worth $1,750? No. No, it did not. <laughs> no, no, it did and not. And this, this only gets you Google, right? That is correct. Yeah, so... That is correct. So no, I'm going with a no on that one. <laughs> uh, we say no to that. All right, but yeah. there is another option. There's Bose, which also introduced a new smart speaker and sound bars. And I really don't know. (laughs) I'm like, this one does Amazon Madam A and later voice assistants will follow and also AirPlay 2 for simple streaming from Apple devices. That's going to happen next year as well. Right. The interesting thing, other voice assistants to follow. Now, the question is, will it be Google? Would it be Bixby? Would it be Cortana? Oh, pox. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. And I'm looking for prices on these, and I don't see ah, them. $400. $400. Okay. So this is our mid-range. No, that's our low end, actually, right now for the speaker. For a large speaker, yeah. Okay. So a large speaker, and then the sound bars. There's a small one and a big one retailing for roughly 550 and 800 respectively. So, yep. Yay. All right. We're not a speaker show, so we're going to move on to crazy stuff you could do in the home from IFA. So... Eve, they're a sensor maker for HomeKit devices. They actually launched a HomeKit air quality monitor at IFA that, you know, measures temperature, humidity, air quality. It's actually really tiny. Like a lot of their Eve sensors, it's about, I don't know, half the size of a cell phone. And this is their Room 2, and it's going to cost $100. So that's kind of, actually, that's exactly how much I paid for my Aware Glow that measures all of these things. What I like about this is that it's a small unit and it doesn't run on a power cord. And some people may say, well, that kind of sucks because now you got to charge it or change batteries. Yes, you do. That's correct. But you can move it from room to room much easier, I think. Take it anywhere. And that makes it very handy. Yes. And worth noting that this is the first thing launched since Eve actually split its gaming division and ditched its Elgato brand. So these used to be Elgato Eve sensors, but in June, the end of June, they actually created Eve systems to only focus on the HomeKit stuff. So worth noting. So this is the first one. Everything else is old. We'll see what happens there. And moving right along to crazy stuff from Bosch. Holy moly. This is crazy stuff. Holy moly. Okay. I got so excited by this. So we are not at IFA. So we tuned into Rye. Oh, I never know if it's Chris Christ. He is a CNET home reporter. He's a lovely fellow. We read him all the time. He's been on the show. So he actually tweeted from the Bosch presser a bunch of stuff, including 
induction cooktops with intelligence so it could understand if you're burning stuff or cooking stuff too hot, which I thought was really cool. And he also showed off this projector. And it's basically a projector that projects an image that you can interact with on your countertop. Okay. I saw this and got so excited because I actually saw the semiconductor that made this possible in the Bosch booth at CES. I did a whole story on it. I was just super stoked because this thing was amazing, you guys. You, if you put this, and they're showing it as a standalone unit, but if you put this, you could put this on like an Amazon Echo or something like that. It actually could show you video. It could show you video on any surface. You could move your hand up and down and the resolution changed seamlessly. And then you could interact with it. So imagine if you could say, if your doorbell rang and you could turn and put your Nest doorbell camera image into this, it could just show it to you on your counter. So that's cool, right? Absolutely. Other thing that's cool is you could actually, all the controls right now, like we're very excited about the controls on the Lenovo smart display for things like lights, because you can say, you know, hey, G, turn on the lights. And then it'll show you a control for like color tuning or things like that, dimming. If you imagine that popping up on your counter via this type of display, then you just like do it right there on the counter. Yeah, this is, it's interesting because there's a whole suite of apps that you can have. It really looks to me like they've taken the open source version of Android and created their own little interface with it. But I mean, you could even use, I mean, they're showing a video, not a video, a picture of, you know, the Chrome browser and Pinterest and all that. And you could do all that without a display because your countertop is the display. And I presume there's some kind of, I don't know what kind of sensors they would have in the projection part itself, but to allow you the interaction where you could interact with these apps and so on. And it could be handy for recipes or who knows what. I mean, I like the idea of it. I don't know that I would just put this on my countertop, but I could see it as a future thing, especially as they tweak this idea and implementation. In fact, it reminds me of the very last CES that Bill Gates was at. He showed the quote unquote home of the future in a keynote. And they had projection walls, so you could change the look and feel of, you know, what your view is. Like, you could pretend you're in the middle of the ocean and whatnot. But it was all interactive, and they had a projection on the countertop that you could, you know, do recipes and so on. So Okay, so don't just think about recipes. Think about something like an interactive cooking demonstration that if you put something underneath it, it could tell you, like, hey here's how to cut the chicken. And it would show like lines where you chop your chicken. So imagine kind of like an AR on top of your actual food. And that's along the lines of what he showed. It was kind of like you'd put a certain amount of food in a spot and the projector would kind of visualize it, the density and so on and say, you need a little bit more. That's too much for this recipe. You're right. When you start melding AI and sensors and get rid of the screens, have projection, there's a lot you can do. Yeah. I'm super high on projectors. I have been for a long time. So I love this, you guys. Okay. It's it's like AR without the glasses. Yeah, basically. Although in a limited spot, like this spot on your counter, right here, this spot, you'll have your induction charging spot, and then you'll have your projection spot, and then you'll have your, I don't know what spot. Bosch also showed off a washer and dryer that basically you just throw stuff in it. It senses what it is and it says, this is the type of wash you should do. This is how much soap I need to dispense. This feels like something I have to try. Maybe to me, <laughs> laundry is not like, this could be like a revelation. Like remember the June and when I got this, I was like, even my toast tastes better, you guys. And that was a function of like really optimizing for that particular thing. With washing, maybe there is better washing and I just don't know it. And I'll notice it over time that my clothes are cleaner. Maybe they're less, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, worn by washing. But it feels like I don't know that I know that I need an AI controlled washing machine. 
Right. And this is a big part of the IoT conundrum. We don't know what we don't know yet. It's almost like until you implement something, you almost don't know that it's better, or maybe it's not. We'll see. But that's a big challenge here. Yes. So, hey, anyone at Bosch, I want to test this out and see if it's actually better. What color? Oh, that was the fridge. I know the fridges came in different colors. I had replaceable doors as well. Yeah, I didn't actually put this on here, but because it's not really technically IoT, but Bosch also did show off these refrigerator doors that you can swap out in their different colors. I love color, so I was really excited by this. But again, there's no smartness associated with this at all. I know. I brought it up just because you were so excited about it. Not as excited (laughs) as I was about the projection, but that's okay. All right. So let's move from IFA. Those are the big things we've seen so far that were exciting. Let's talk about a $50 million funding for a company called Pulse Technologies. That's P-U-L-S. These guys basically come in and hang your televisions. They might even program your smart lights. And apparently this is a bang up business for some people. Yeah. Yeah. They've got about 2,500 vetted professionals in 50 metro areas. They get them kind of like the Best Buy Geek Squad, but they're trained to do pretty much anything here. And smart home service is part of the deal. So they can you know, set things up for you, probably help you with routines, assistance, et cetera. So, and some people need that. And that's, you know, even though we're still more of a DIY kind of thing with these devices available, you know, she's at Walmart, Target and everywhere else. Some people still are like, I don't even know how to set it up. So, well, you know. and you got to think about like, what was it? We had Charlie Kindle, who was the head of the Amazon Echo smart home platform for a long time, go over to Control 4, which is very much a professionally installed smart home setup. So, you know, I can see how there's a limited layer of us that are willing to go through the pain. And we'll talk about that pain later. And there's probably a lot of us who, if you could make it affordable, would totally be like, yes, please come in. I'll give you, you know, maybe, I don't know if the price is like closer to like $2,000 to outfit my home and make it smart. You think that's a reasonable price? Maybe it depends on the home, how many devices, what you want. The way Pulse does it is it's just a flat fee for the service, depending on the type of job. They must be doing okay, though, because apparently their techs make between seventy and 80000 a year. That's not unusual. I mean, it's, you're messing around with lots of stuff. So I'm on their website, and it looks like the way they do it is if I want to do a smart home thing, I basically pick a zip code so we can get the pricing. I'm assuming that New York costs more than Austin. And it's like, hey, do you have a thermostat? And I'm like, yes, I want to install that. Do you have smart home devices? What kind? It looks like they don't have electricians because they don't do any lighting that is like light switches, which is kind of a pain because that's a lot of the problems that people have. But they do support like simple, safe security. They have a bunch of baby monitors, cameras. August door locks, ring doorbells, the various hubs. So that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, maybe they'll expand that. Because if I recall, these guys were actually like smartphone repair based, and then they expanded into this sector. So maybe this is a, you know a future addition for them is to add electrical services. I would say that they should, because that is actually a competitive advantage for like Comcast, when I talk to them about their installer network, I'm like, that's awesome. You have this. It's a very big deal. But they don't have electricians. And that, you know, is a really convenient thing to have someone who can install light switches for you or outlets. So anyway, that's just my take. One of the more painful things I have to do is install outlets. So maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just me. Okay. So these guys got a lot of money. What else is going on, Kevin? Uh, So there's some changes coming to the Google Assistant. 9to5 Google took a look at the latest file 
installation for Google Assistant. I don't know if this version has been released yet, but they're seeing bits of code revealing household, family mode, and downtime. So it looks like we've got some adjustments coming there or some improvements there. So that's good. I'm guessing household will let you kind of put different people's personal information together in the home, you know? That's what I'm hoping. Now, I appreciate that, you know, they've got to iterate and do this, but I will say every time they update something, I have to, like, they're adding basically a new user interface almost in a way. And then suddenly, like half the time I find that I have now, if I want to use this new functionality, I have named my devices poorly, or maybe I put them in the wrong rooms, or I need to put them in rooms. So this sounds terrible. This iterative process, I'm not sure it's working really well for people. And I think they probably just give up because I know that Sometimes I just look at this and I'm like, oh, screw it. I'm not going to connect this to Google Home because I already have something called the front door and that's the lock. And now I've got to have a doorbell called this or a light called this. And I'm like, oh. Yeah, we're going to talk about this a little more later, but I'm right there with you with some recent challenges on these updates and changes and the frustrations. So yeah, I don't know the answer because it's like, don't do it, wait, install it professionally. I mean, I do want them to iterate on things, right? That's a kind of important thing. But again, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Last little bit of news for us is Google Assistant now can control your Nest by Yale lock. Or can it? Or can it? Because I tried this and perhaps it's just not rolled out yet. Maybe it's a rolling release, but my home app does not even show the Nest by Yale Lock. It does show my Nest Hello Doorbell, and it shows my Nest Camera. So Stacy suggested wisely, you know what? I think you've got to unlink your Nest products from Google Home and add the account back, and then it should appear. So I did that. But in doing so, I need to get the verification code. Nest will send you via SMS when you add an account to Google Home. And it never came. Well, I shouldn't say never. About 30 minutes later, we'd already given up. It came. So I finally re-added the Nest back to Google Home. And guess what happened? It's not there. It's still not there. So maybe it's just rolling out. But the whole fact that you have to unlink accounts just to add new devices, I mean, I'm assuming that's the case. Maybe it will magically just appear in Google Home for me. Mine has not magic. So I have one and I have linked my Google Home account to my Nest account. It has not magically appeared in mine either. Okay. Well, when it does, if and when it does, you should be able to query your Google Home to see if the front door, well, the front door, any door, the lock is locked or not. And you can lock it by voice for security reasons. They have decided to not allow voice unlocking at this time. And that makes sense. Before we start complaining, Kevin, would you like to talk about the new device that you tried? I would love to talk about that. I tested out, I'm still testing out, the Philips Hue Lily Spotlights. I'll tell you right up front what you get. They are three LED outdoor spots and a low-voltage plug-in transformer. So you literally just plug these into an outlet. They are weather-resistant, so obviously they can be outside. It's $280 for these. If you would like to add additional spots... They are $80 each. And I know that sounds odd because you're like, well, why didn't you just buy three regular spots? Because you don't get the transformer with a single LED spot. And you need that. Each transformer can handle up to five spotlights. Being from Philips Hue, you've got your choice of 16 million colors. The nice thing about these, you can control each color on each spot individually. So I kind of celebrated Christmas, for example, with one red and one green on my house last night, which everybody was walking by going, what are you doing? And I said, okay, I'll put them back to white. So you got all your choices of colors and regular whites. 
setup's pretty easy. I like how they've done this. They've made the wiring heavy duty and these connectors where you just connect and screw in the one wire to the next wire. It's very simple. You cannot not do it correctly. It's impossible to do wrong. So that part is easy. It's about 15 feet in between each spot and it works great. However, I don't know. Maybe it's my home. I could not connect this to either Madam A nor Google Assistant. I was successful with Siri and HomeKit. So that worked out fine, but I don't know why I could not connect this to either of my other assistants or my Wink Hub. So not sure. This requires the Philips Hue Bridge, which is not included. So hopefully you already have one. If not, I think they go for about 60 bucks. And, you know, create scenes just like any other Hue set of bulbs. You know, it's very similar. It's just meant for outdoors. Okay. And you had a Hue Bridge sent to you as well, correct? I did have a Hue Bridge sent to me. All of these are loaner units, yes. The one challenge that I had during setup, I said it was easy, and it was. But for some reason, not the bridge, but the bulbs themselves needed a firmware update. And it said right in the app, this could take up to an hour. And when I told you, Stacey, you're like, oh, it happens all the time. It's very quick. It wasn't quick. It was like 30 minutes, 30 minutes to get that firmware update pushed over, I guess, because of the Zigbee connection. You made a liar out of me. But yes, yes, Zigbee is itty bitty bandwidth. So that's my guess is that happened. But that is a constant source, actually, for me with my hues. I very rarely go into the app because I have all of that very automated. So it is inevitable that when I want to do something like a little bit fancy, I turn to the app and inevitably there is an update waiting for me. And then I can't do what I want to do until I download the update. So I kind of wish those were automatic. I understand why they might not be because sometimes when they do an update, the lights do flash. And if, for example, they did it at 2 a.m. and I was sleeping and my lights suddenly flashed on, I would be a little upset. So I can get where like as a manufacturer, they're like, when do we let the control pass to the user versus us doing it? Ah, But it is frustrating. And that is a long time. And speaking of frustrating, let's talk about some frustrations that we've had. So this week I have had two devices do software updates that have broken functionality in those devices. And it makes me sad. The first is my Tesla. I don't know what happened. There is some update and now my garage door won't open. The home link functionality does not work on it. And I can't reprogram it. I can't do anything with it. And so basically, and this is very much a first world problem, probably a one percenter problem. I'm not actually a one percenter, but I get that this is not something to be sympathetic about. I now have to use my garage door opener. My car does not automatically open the garage door anymore. And I'm kind of bummed about it because I paid a lot of money for this car. And I don't really have a lot of recourse. I've called the Tesla people and they're going to look into it. But it's a little frustrating to have something work one day and then the next not have it work, right? Yeah, software updates in general, it's a hit or miss. You know, you'd hope things are tested, but is every single function tested? Did somebody test the Homelink feature? Probably not because the changes were likely not related to it, but something broke something is what it sounds like. Yes. So the other aspect of this that is frustrating is my June oven. Y'all, my June oven, the device I thought could do no wrong. And I still love it, but they did an update to add some actually really good functionality. It adds more instructions for people like where to put the temperature probe when you're trying to cook. It shows you a picture, which is nice because some people were like, my food isn't done. And I'm like, did you insert it deeply enough in the right spot? And they're like, no. Insert the probe. So that was good. But somehow, I don't know how, it no longer recognizes my toast, my brand of bread. So it keeps telling me I put my bread in the oven to toast it. And it's like, is this strudel or a Pop-Tart? I think they call it something that's not a Pop-Tart, but 
No, they say Pop-Tarts. Mine's always Pop-Tarts and salmon, one or the other, because they're both kind of square. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's not strudel. It's not Pop-Tart. It's toast. And it used to recognize it. It used to be all cool. It'd be like, oh, that's bread and four pieces of it. Do you want me to toast it lightly or, you know, medium or whatever? But now I have to press a few extra buttons. Again, not the end of the world. No. But what happened? But it's not functioning the way you expect it to or was functioning. I totally agree. I'm going to take a wild guess here, though, because I actually had a problem with my June oven as well recently. Mine was not preheating anything. You would literally set the temperature and normally it would say, okay, preheating, but it just wasn't preheating. It would just start cooking. And that's not good because it's not the right temperature yet. The good thing about the June, their support people are fantastic. And Dory over there helped me out. Oh, Dory's helped me before too. Go Dory. Oh yeah, Dory's the bomb over there. Absolutely. But they're all good. They're all good. But somehow I always get Dory. The thing is they can actually, with your permission, go and look at the logs of the oven to see everything that happened, which is awesome for finding problems. And they found a problem with one of my heating elements one time before and literally just sent me a brand new oven, you know, and they paid to send that and send back the other one. So they found that out from the logs. In this case, the problem that I had, and I'm wondering if it's related to what you're seeing, the camera up top of the oven gets eventually covered with stuff. Oh, and I have to clean my oven. You have to at least clean the camera off. And I'll tell you why. Because the June, my June was functioning as designed. If it doesn't see any food in there, that's how it knows to preheat. Because there was schmutz on the camera, it said, well, there must be something here. I don't know what it is, but let's start cooking. So that's what happened to me. And sure enough, after her checking the logs, we determined that was my issue. I clean off the camera and I got my preheat function back 100% of the time. So it could be the food ID is not quite right because you're not giving it the best data. Oh, okay. See, and that's a very analog problem. I love it. Okay. But we'll see. Try that. And then we'll go down the software route. Indeed. And I was thinking another aspect of this, especially with food, and you'll see because I have the CEO of Chef Steps, which makes the Jewel sous vide cooker. I was thinking about some of their recipes. So June creates these pre-selected recipes for you. So you just pop salmon in and say, hey, this is how I want it done. And it just does it. But those things get tweaked over time. And I was thinking, man, what if I really liked one way they cooked it and they changed that recipe over time and then suddenly it's just slightly different and maybe not as good. And you may not, there's not a lot of transparency around that. So you may just be like, huh, what's happened here? So I was thinking about that because I was thinking about changing recipes for the sous vide. And suddenly I was like, I kind of have lost all control over how things might taste. But most of the time they taste better. So that's an okay trade-off. I don't know. These are things. Yeah. You know, you're right. It's not transparent because the algorithms get tweaked as all the information from device owners gets crowdsourced on the cooking results and such. So I guess when we cook a steak, it tastes the same for everybody who has a June oven that's cooking a steak. And I would love, and I'm pretty sure I suggested it on the user forum, hey, let me save a cooking method because that's how I like it, right? You did it right, but all of a sudden it changed, you know, and I want it the way it used to be. So let me save that. Yes. Basically your own personal rollback function. I like it. Yes. Okay. Which is only useful for things that are not security related. That's probably an important thing to note. Like you got to patch if it's insecure, but other than that, yes. go for it. Okay. Well, this was our, I guess, weekly complaint session. We don't usually complain very much, <laughs> but so monthly, we'll call it monthly. So let's go to our IOT podcast listener hotline for a question from you guys. 
The IoT Podcast Listener Hotline is brought to you by Schlage. Don't miss your chance to win a Schlage Sense smart deadbolt and Wi-Fi adapter. We are giving those away through the end of this month. To enter, all you have to do is call us at 512-623-7424 and ask us a question. And we will enter you into the drawing. This month's drawing actually ends Friday at midnight Eastern time. So Friday, August 31st. That gives you basically a day and a half to call us. And remember, smarter homes start with Schlage. As a note, last week we answered a question from a listener about tracking his children. And we gave many options, but we kind of forgot a really obvious one. And a bunch of you guys called us on it. So thank you. We forgot about Life360 which is a really good app. It is an app that you can put on your phone. It also integrates with lots of services like If This Then That. It has a deal with BMW. It has a deal with some security companies. And basically, this app lets you see where your kids are, where any of your family members are. And it can be really useful. And if you use it with Ift, when your kids get within your house range, they can actually give you an alert. So They even include some nice features like a group chat for your family and such within the app. Yes. So... Guys, we didn't talk about that because it's not a thing, but we should have because it does talk to things. So, Because it is a thing. thing. It's a thing on your phone. It's a software thing. Okay. So this week's question comes to us from Donna. Hey, guys. This is Donna calling from Toronto. My question for you is, is about a gift. I'm wondering, is there something you can think of that I could either make or buy with a budget of less than about $50? That would be a good gift for someone who is, you know, moving into a college dorm in September. So someone who's leaving home and moving into a dorm, and I want to give them something that would be something thoughtful. I'd love to hear your ideas for this kind of project. And thanks a lot. I love the show. Bye. Oh, Donna, this is a great question. And Kevin actually just wrote a story last week about how to outfit your kid's dorm with some smart stuff. So you should definitely check that out. But it sounds like this isn't your kid. You're just trying to be a thoughtful person, which is amazing. So we tried to come up with some equally thoughtful ideas for you that are beyond just the, here, buy them an Echo and a smart plug. So Kevin came up with a really good one. Kevin? Well, it's a potentially good one. It depends on the person that you're buying for. But this past weekend, I moved my daughter into Kutztown University for her first year of college. One thing I noticed, a lot of the kids were walking around with water bottles. It was a hot day, I will say that. But, you know, when they weren't carrying a Starbucks cup, they were carrying their own water bottles. So I thought, you know what, Stacy has a bunch of water bottles. I'll bet you there's an inexpensive one that's kind of connected to help you track your hydration for under 50 bucks. And I think you found one. I did. It is called the Hydrate H-I-D-R-A-T-E Spark 2.0. There are two of these. One is $50, but that's right at the edge of your price range there. So I say go for the $45 one. It comes in different colors. It's Bluetooth. It links to an app and it glows when you need to drink more. So it starts glowing and it also integrates with Fitbit, Apple Watch and other things. So basically, as you drink, that water is going to get transferred into your Fitbit data. And, you know, as you need to drink, it'll start glowing, which actually might be kind of disruptive. So think about it in a darkened classroom or a movie theater. You may want to turn that glow functionality off. Oh, I wouldn't. (laughs) Kevin's like, you would just suffer. I would just drink the water so I know that I'm hydrated. I've got a battery-powered Hue spotlight I'm taking with me to the movies. Yeah. So that was one option. Another, I was looking for a Bluetooth light bulb 
that had a remote because I thought it'd be nice to have a light bulb that you could put in something like a lamp and be able to turn it off even if the switch is across the room or at night. But I couldn't find a Bluetooth one that had a remote. So if anyone else has found one, let me know. I did find some on Amazon, but I can't say I've used them or heard of anybody who uses them. And almost all of them, they did have remotes, but almost all of them also had a speaker built in, which actually might be nice as well for playing some music. But I cannot speak to the quality of them or anything like that. Got it. Okay, yes. So I found, I recommend the IKEA Trodfi. For $50, you can barely get away with it. So there is a dimmer and a bulb, and then you have to buy the hub for $30. If that appeals to you, it's going to have a Wi-Fi component. I was trying to avoid the Wi-Fi component, but I couldn't. So those are the two things that we thought might be a good gift for someone going away to college that are under $50. We also found one other thing that you may love or hate. The Philips makes a wake-up light alarm clock with a sunrise simulation. It also has a clock in there. So this is about 50 bucks on Amazon. There are more expensive models that do crazy colors. But basically, you set your alarm and it can make noise, but it doesn't have to. It can also, the idea is that it would light up instead. So this might be good if you have a roommate that, you know, doesn't like to wake up as early as you do. And it might also be a nice way for someone who may not be used to getting up in the morning on their own to kind of set up an alarm that's loud and also a force function with the lighting. I don't know. So there is another idea for you. Okay, Donna, I hope that helps. And guys, if you guys think of anything else, let us know. All right. I think it is now time for us to take a break for a message from our sponsor and stick around because after that, we are going to be talking to Chris Young, the CEO of Chef Steps, about why he didn't put an interface on the Joule sous vide cooker. We're going to be talking about what the heck sous vide actually is and his decision to go it alone as opposed to licensing with large appliance vendors. All this and more in a moment. Hey everyone, we are taking a break from this week's Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Afero, and I have Joe Britt, CEO of Afero, here to talk to us. To get started, why don't you describe Afero for us? Afero is a sensor-to-cloud IoT platform. We really take a lot of pride in the fact that it really just works. Our customers tell us that it's the best choice for them for a fantastic end-user experience and great developer productivity. And I think a lot of this comes from the fact that a bunch of us at Afero came from places like Apple, Nest, Google, Android, or Netflix. And we really wanted to bring the best of engineering and design disciplines from those previous experiences into IoT. We've been talking for the last few weeks about Afero and how some of its customers, such as Kenmore and D-Link, have been using your software to cut 80% off their time to market and giving them the ability to reuse 90% of their work from one project to the next. This is really exceptional. So let's focus today on what you guys do with the back end of IoT systems. You can really think of IoT in three big parts. There's first the supply chain, which is all about the security and efficiency of actually building a product. Then you've got the device end, which has to do with the security and way that that particular device communicates. But then we reach the part that you just mentioned, the back end. And the back end of IoT is really the engine room of the system. And it's all about how responsive and how scalable and how resilient the system is. And security has to underpin all of that. Now, 
Many end-user complaints that we've heard can ultimately be traced to problems with the back end. The back end is the part that guides the policy and business logic and is triggered by different events that translate ultimately into the vital control and asset data for an application. So what happens to device data when it arrives at the cloud? This is critical. The data has to be processed instantly so that the end user feels like they're just using a normal or traditional remote control. And it can't be something that takes seconds and seconds to respond. So we've got to take into account the whole round trip of the traffic, plus acting on whatever the particular command was and implementing whatever the policies are that are relevant to that command. We have to squeeze all of this down into milliseconds. This demands a truly elastic implementation that is extremely optimized in terms of processing to achieve that. Now, the data also has to be structured properly so that once we retrieve it, we can easily feed it into different analytics and machine learning tools. And then we have to scale all of that up to thousands or millions of devices without sacrificing any of that responsiveness or security. And then on top of the whole thing, we have to make it super reliable. And that means high availability, multi-zone, multi-cloud implementations. That sounds like a lot. So where can people go to find out more information about Afero? The best place to start is afero.io slash go big. That's A-F-E-R-O dot I-O slash G-O-B-I-G. And if you're a developer, please also check out developer.afero.io. everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Chris Young, who is the CEO and co-founder at ChefSteps. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Stacey. Thanks for having me on today. All right. I am super excited because you guys, not only are you a recipe site, but you are also the maker of the Jewel Sous Vide Cooker, and I have been playing with this for a while. Okay, let's kick it off with why you guys decided to basically invent a internet-connected cooking device. Sure. It's not the most obvious trajectory, I suppose, that we took, but we did start as a content and recipe site in late 2011, early 2012. And we had a real focus on modernist approaches to cooking because I had been the co-author of Modernist Cuisine. And we started basically putting videos up on YouTube and the accompanying recipes on chefsteps.com. And the real point was to see if anybody was interested, if anybody, you know, would follow what we were doing. And that was about as far as our plan went back then. The really good news was it turned out there was a huge global audience and we grew very, very quickly. And a lot of people did come to us for the content, the quality of our videos, the information we were providing. And there was a real interest in sous vide cooking that we were clearly serving. Okay, before we go any further, we should probably tell everybody what sous vide cooking is. Sous vide cooking, as I think about it, is just a way of adding a measured amount of heat to your recipe so that food is never overcooked or undercooked. And it's a technique that's used in many of the best restaurants around the world and even many restaurants that would surprise you that they're doing sous vide, such as Chipotle. At the end of the day, sous vide involves packaging food, usually in some sort of flexible food-grade plastic bag. It'd be a vacuum-sealed bag like a food saver. You then put the food into a water bath and you will have some device, in our case a dual sous vide cooker, that heats the water to the ideal temperature for the doneness you want. So if you want your steak medium rare, you might put it in the water. The water might heat up to, say, 122 degrees, 124 degrees Fahrenheit, whatever your preference is. And the food can't really get any hotter than the water. And when you're ready to eat, you can take the food out and give it a quick sear. And you're going to have a steak that's better than, I would say, probably 
percent of all restaurants you would go to because the food is actually going to have no risk of being overcooked and it's relatively simple to sear it. Okay, so from the website, you decided that people were interested especially in sous vide cooking. So you did? Yeah, so we decided ultimately we recognized there was a real need to have a better piece of sous vide hardware that we could see that no matter how much content we put out, no matter how much effort we put in education, there was still a lot of confusion around it. And in a sense, sous vide gives people the most accurate thermostat they've ever had in their kitchen before. The problem is nobody knows what temperature set it to. You know, a few degrees difference is a pretty big difference in the final outcome for, say, a poached egg or that chicken breast. And, you know, what we saw was everything at the time was a direct descendant of laboratory equipment. So it was a real gadget. It was quite intimidating. And we knew the benefits of sous vide were tremendous both to professional cooks, but had the potential to be tremendously helpful to home cooks. But you were going to need to have a piece of hardware that was designed from the ground up to be more helpful to home cooks, to not force them to translate their preferences into engineering parameters. We did spend some time talking to other hardware manufacturers about this because our eyes were reasonably wide open about what it would take to actually make a hardware device ourselves. But after spending several months talking to leading hardware manufacturers, we sort of became convinced that they didn't see the same vision that we did for what was possible in terms of creating internet-connected devices they would actually be there to support cooks and help them get the most out of their tools. So after I really got a frustration from that, we sort of bit the bullet and said, well, we're going to design a sous vide device and we're going to make the device that we think can be an actual cooking tool that's really going to empower people in their home kitchens. That was sort of the goal. And it was helpful that we were actually still pretty naive about making hardware because it turned out to be a lot more challenging than we thought. <laughs> you opened it right up. Let's talk about some of those challenges. One of the things that we felt was important is we didn't want it to be a gadget. We wanted it to be a tool. And as a professional chef or a former professional chef myself, there's a real difference in my mind. A knife, for example, is a tool. I rely on it. I use it all the time. It is essential for me to do my job. You might look at a bread maker, for example, something that probably leans towards gadget, where maybe for most people who bought one, it maybe comes out once a year and then it goes to the back of the cupboard and never gets seen again. We didn't want sous vide to fall into that trap because we knew how beneficial it could be on a day-to-day -day basis. But we also understand people's kitchens are crowded and, you know, countertop real estate or top drawer real estate is really, really valuable and things need to be compact. At the time, the leading sous vide devices weighed about nine or 10 pounds. They were relatively enormous. I mean, they were quite literally reskinned laboratory equipment. We set out with the goal to make something small enough that it could fit in that top drawer so that it was easy to grab and quick to use on, say, a Wednesday night. But one of the challenges with sous vide is you're heating water. And anybody who has a background in physics knows that water takes a tremendous amount of heat energy to raise the temperature and hold it there. So we're not dealing with, you know, the power of a light bulb. We're dealing with, you know, 1,100 watts of power, which, you know, is maybe about 80% of what you can even take out of an outlet. So the challenge there is as we shrink the device down to make it small enough to fit into a countertop door, meaning it needs to be less than about an inch and three quarters deep you're shrinking a huge amount of power into a smaller and smaller surface area. In fact, at the end of the day with Joule, the amount of power we have crammed into this tiny heater core is about 60% of the watt density that a nuclear reactor core operates at. To actually pull that off, we had to invent some proprietary and new heating technologies to even make that possible. So these are things where in retrospect, there was a lot of hubris that we thought we could do that. Those are just some of the engineering challenges that you know we wrangled with while also trying to figure out how do you be a hardware company? <laughs> I really want to tell people I'm cooking with nuclear fission. I know I'm not. Right. Yeah. But 
let's talk about one of the controversial decisions that you guys made, because I'll be honest, when I pulled out the jewel, I was like, hey, there's just this one button on the top. And I don't actually, I'm not a huge lover of screens and my smartphone to just control things. So I kind of looked askance at the fact that this was a $180 or $200 device that had no interface without an app. I will say that was a controversial decision within the company. It wasn't taken lightly, but there was a real thought behind it. It was polarizing. In fact, I think when we first launched, I remember reading comments on the subreddit for sous vide, basically saying, whoever made this decision should be dragged into the street and shot. Well, whoever that person was, I'm the person you want to go after. The reason for that decision, and this is something I don't think we did as good a job as we would have liked to have done, of explaining to our customers why we made that decision. And this goes back to when we thought about what the future of the kitchen could be, we recognized you weren't going to invent a lot of new ways to heat things up or move heat energy around. The real opportunity was to rethink how people interface with these devices. Because if you think about it, every technology we have in the average home kitchen, it's actually recognizable to somebody from the 1950s. It hasn't changed that much. And most of it's recognizable to somebody from the 30s. And all of them require you to translate what you want. I want my chicken. I want it to be roasted. I want it to be crispy skin and still succulent. And I want it done at 730. You have to translate that into engineering parameters like should the oven be 350 Fahrenheit or 400. And how long will it take to cook? Uh, you know, this is where a lot of the confusion comes up for both professional chefs and home cooks. So we felt that the opportunity was to actually create a way of interacting with devices that was a fundamentally more human way that you could express your preferences of, hey, I want my steak to look like this. I want to eat it at this time. And you didn't have to translate that necessarily into knowing that that means you probably want your water bath at 128 degrees Fahrenheit. We certainly give people the options of inputting a manual temperature, but we created something we called visual doneness, where you could just look at the imagery, which is a fundamentally human vocabulary, and say, yeah, that chicken looks like the one I want, or the texture of that short rib, that looks right to me. Here's how thick my food is. That gives the computer some geometric information that allows you to say, okay, it looks like the food will be done at this time. So we wanted to move those kind of controls over into software because we knew we wouldn't get it 100% right. We also knew it would probably have to be personalized because different people would want to approach the device in different ways. By moving all those controls off the physical device and into the software layer, it gave us the ability to make the device better over time. It gave us the opportunity to think about new ways to interact, such as we have now Alexa support and very soon we'll have Google support. Because voice, when your hands are covered in goo, voice is a phenomenal way of communicating with your device. So the the idea was never to have it just be an app controlled. The the app is useful and there's information you can convey visually that can't be conveyed uh, in other ways. But there's also room for verbal. So while we know some people would like to have that physical control, we basically felt that the trade-offs were worth moving things into software. We knew that meant there would be customers we couldn't serve, that they were just going to reject that idea. But we were really interested in finding the customers who bought into this idea so that as we create more devices, as we create new features, we can demonstrate to them that we're making it better over time. And that's really the long-term view we have of this. It's not just about dual sous vide device. There will be other hardware. There will be other services. We wanted to demonstrate that the future of the kitchen can actually leverage software in a way that allows you to be more at the center of the experience, to make it more human, not less human, because there are things that computers and software can do that are just really hard for even a skilled professional chef to do. So that was kind of the decision behind it. And I think on some level, we could have put a control in, but we felt that really would have been kind of creating a backdoor, not only for our customers, but kind of taking the pressure off us to really think very hard about how to make these trade-offs and how to do it well. So you could argue it was a forcing function that required us to be really good at connectivity, to be really focused on reliability, 
to really think about user experiences and how those needed to work. You know, it was certainly high risk. We could have flamed out, but you know, as far as we can tell, we're the best-selling connected sous vide device now. We're the number two in the market. The leading device is, is largely not reliant on their app. And that gives us an ongoing relationship with our customers so that we keep getting better over time. And so it looks like that that decision actually has panned out pretty well for us. But the onus is totally on us to continue to demonstrate to our customers that it was a good decision by continually shipping updates that make the experience better and better. Okay. So what is your thought process around if the company goes out of business, do you have actual things in place or does everyone sous vide just stop working? Yeah, no, we're, I mean, one of the nice things is, you know, we did think about that. And there are, we've actually had some people be able to, you know, we took security pretty seriously. So there are aspects of the device where we would have to open them up to make it possible for other developers to support it. But there are plans to be able to do that. The infrastructure is in place. Essentially, we're using our own internal APIs to do these kind of things. So it would be relatively trivial for us to open that up. If we basically said, okay, this is kind of the end of the life for us, or that would be something we could do. And we have seen enough people people attempt to reverse engineer some of our process and get some of the basic controls going, that there seems to be some level of interest in in supporting it. So for us, we've even thought about we probably should open source that at some point. That's a trickier question that I think is still an internal discussion of where those boundaries are. How do we respect our customers' data privacy? So we're not quite ready to do it. And But that is something we're actively thinking about is how do we encourage more people to keep innovating with software through the kitchens and connecting to our devices that allow them to put that software into action where it can actually prepare a meal. Okay. And along this line, let's talk about business models for the smart kitchen, because a lot of connected device makers, there's a lot of innovation happening with companies like yourself. Mm -hmm. There's the June oven, Mm -hmm. there's just lots. But there's also a really big established number of vendors out there who make the traditional home appliances. When I look at what they're trying to do, it feels like your app, your software, the intelligence you guys have built over the years might be well suited for GE or Whirlpool to come in and buy and maybe make part of, I know they don't have a sous vide option yet, but make part of their own kitchen ecosystem. What are your thoughts around how that's going to evolve? So there's a few issues and we have thought about this. We have even talked to some of these companies, but we haven't yet resolved some questions we have that would allow us to go forward. One of the first issues is actually really pragmatic. A lot of the things we really want to be doing with software, and we will have more announcements later this year, particularly in the area of what we're doing with machine learning, require us to actually have really tight control over the hardware, the sensors, the calibration, to be able to provide clean data to our various cloud services to do things like cut the cooking time significantly or make predictions about how the food will come out. Those are things we certainly see how they would be appealing, but those device manufacturers would have to get on board and do something they haven't traditionally done, which is put much, much better sensors in the device. I mean, the best oven on the market, a tens of thousand dollar rationale oven, if you actually tested and we did for modernist cuisine, you'd be surprised to find that the accuracy is about plus or minus 10%. He gads! It's terrible, right? And they're not even controlling the thing that actually matters, for example, in an oven, which is you need humidity control as well. So these OEMs of of kitchen hardware, your Whirlpools, your GEs, Electroluxes, and so forth, they would have to get really serious about putting much, much better sensors in the hardware, doing the hard work of calibrating them to get accuracy usually reserved for sort of precision lab equipment, and really thinking very hard about how to provide that data back and then what to do with it. So you could imagine we could work with them on that, but that would be a pretty distortionary thing for our company because all of a sudden we're really having to spend most of our time working with these licensees to bring them up to where we're already at. So that's just one issue of like how much it would sink parts of our company's teams into those things. The other issue is 
when we're building our own hardware, when we're integrating that with our own software, when we're sort of vertically integrated that way, we have real clarity over who our customer is. There's no ambiguity of how we make money. There's no ambiguity about like whose needs are you serving. As soon as you start to change your company into being a licensing organization, well, is Electrolux the customer or is their end user the customer or is a jewel owner the customer? You start to get ambiguity there. And, and particularly, we run a very low structure environment in, in our company. And confusion around who the customer is has always led to problems and particularly bad decision making about what to prioritize, what to really work on. So does that keep you guys kind of as a niche product or a luxury product for a while to come then? I don't think we're a luxury product. I mean, we're sub $200, I think, you know, and without disclosing numbers, you know, we have customers in the six-figure range and growing rapidly, but we do agree that it's going to take product two and product three to continue to grow out from this. We potentially could grow our revenue faster by licensing it, but that's never been our biggest priority. You know, we are really focused on making sure that we are retaining our customers, engaging them and serving them well over time so that they continue to be customers for years to come. And let's talk about additional hardware. I'm sure you're not going to disclose your product ramp, but let's talk about where you might go. Hardware products, a lot of companies who build hardware are looking at like meal kits. Mm -hmm. So what are you guys thinking? There's a few things. Hardware is a tough business. You're always under margin pressure, and that's never going to go away. And you run risk of having your business kind of blown up by politically ill-thought-out trade wars. So, you know, be careful what you sign up for. But when we look at it, you know, sous vide is fantastic. As a professional chef, I've been using sous vide since probably 2001. So we have a long history with it. But what we would also say is sous vide's great, but it's not the only thing that could be smarter in your kitchen that could actually do a better job. And so a lot of the things we're looking at on the hardware team or actively developing tend to be complementary technologies. So for example, when on a Wednesday night, sous vide may not be fast enough or you're just not in the mood for something that might be a protein dominated meal. There are complementary technologies that do heat a meal that we think can be mass market, that can be mainstream, and that you can deliver on some of these same core promises of we guarantee the food's going to be cooked perfect. We guarantee it's going to be relatively convenient to do it. And we think there's real meaningful ways that better interfaces, conversational interfaces, machine learning can actually put the human back at the center of the experience even more and make it easier for you to choose to cook, which is really our core metric is are our customers choosing to cook or are they calling the pizza delivery guy? And we are looking at the food space. We are saying, how can we make it easier to choose to cook on a Wednesday night? We were playing with meal kits back in 2013 as Chef Steps. We prototyped them. We beta tested them with some of our community who loved them. We just hated the economics. We sort of looked at it and said, we don't know when these economics ever flip right side up. So we've had a team that's sort of been working on that problem for a few years. And I think they had a real breakthrough late last year. And in fact, they've been building a pilot production facility in Seattle that's going to let them manufacture in the way they want to. And we hope to have something to announce in a few weeks as it comes out of beta. But we really see this as a product that's going to get us into the consumable space and that allows not only jewel owners, but really any sous vide owners to choose to cook more frequently and have a greater diversity of options and have more confidence that they're going to get a meal that's frankly better than one they could get delivered from caviar. I like that that's your standard. <laughs> okay, before we go, let's see, what is your favorite thing to sous vide and give us a recommendation for anybody who's a novice and saying, uh, what would I want to do this for? So tell us what you like to do as a super duper complicated chef person, and then maybe something to convince everyone else that sous vide might be for them. Okay, so for the meat lovers, there's two things that are our frequent go-tos for me. Beef short rib, you really want to get from ribs four, five, and six. If that doesn't mean anything to you, go talk to a butcher. It will mean something to them, but that's the thickest part of the short rib. It's got the most meat. You take that short rib, 
you cook it at 54 degrees Celsius, or you pull out a visual dundas guide and, and choose the texture that lines up with this for three days. Now, it sounds crazy to cook the short rib for three days, but I promise you, this is one of these dishes that tends to change people's lives the first day and they have it, especially if they're a beef lover. There's just so much more flavor in a short rib than, say, a ribeye or especially a filet mignon. But three days of cooking at a very low temperature converts all that tough collagen in the short rib into tender gelatin, but without making it flaky or braised. And you end up with something that's very steak-like. It's as tender as a filet mignon and just superbly delicious. And it's a lot cheaper than a filet mignon. For something more easy on a weeknight, you usually can find in supermarkets pork shoulder steaks. They're usually a tougher cut. They're very flavorful, but you drop those in the morning when you go to work and cook them. They'll be incredibly tender when you get home. Perfect medium rare, which really is how pork should be cooked. I really recommend adding a bit of char sui sauce to the bag so that you can give a quick grill and it's just meat candy at the end. For those who are not meat eaters, beets, lentils, and asparagus are just vegetables or grain preparations that can really benefit from sous vide cooking. And particularly with the grains, what's nice is once they're cooked in the bag, you can leave them in the fridge for easily up to a month so that you can have a really quick meal put together. But with the lentils, they won't tend to split. You won't tend to get the mushiness out of them. They're really great. With the beets, you retain their natural sweetness and earthy flavors. You throw that together with a little goat cheese for, say, salad and maybe some toasted pecans. It's a classic restaurant starter, and it's delicious. Uh, asparagus is one of these things where it really just needs to be lightly cooked. You want it to snap, but you don't want it to be stewed. You don't really want to cook it in anything in other than its own juices, maybe a knob of butter. So asparagus is one of these things where it will be much better than asparagus you typically get in a restaurant that has been steamed and is sort of off green color now and limp. You'll retain that crispness and freshness that I love about asparagus. Okay. You guys didn't know you were listening to a cooking show, but there you go. All right. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show this week. Stacey, it was a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.